I'm going to speak to you this morning from uh, Luke chapter 14, verses uh, 25 through 35. Um, and I think we're going to start off by reading the entire passage of Scripture, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, break it down. So let's, uh, let's start, Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, not Matthew, Luke chapter 14, 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So we're going through the parables of Jesus. Um, and so this one is just probably in your, in your uh, book, or your Bible. If you look at the heading, it probably says cost of discipleship. But I want to start by asking you, the very first verse, it says large crowds followed him. Uh, I'm an inquisitive kind of person. And so my first question is, how large was the crowd? Right? So what do we mean by large crowds followed Jesus? Well, Jesus was extremely popular, and I think it's important for us to understand um, that. And so we're going to look at a few scriptures in the book of Luke that show crowds and how popular he was. So in Luke chapter 4, verse uh, 31 through 37, it says, When he came down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on a Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him! Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. So here is Jesus who's healing people. He's teaching with power and authority. He's casting out demons. And, and people began, began to be amazed. They noticed something different between Jesus' teachings and what Jesus did compared to anyone else in the religious uh, orders of the day. And so there was just an amazement about him. Luke chapter 5, very uh, famous um, portion of Scripture. 
Jesus is uh, healing, he's teaching. And it says, Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. You guys know what happened, right? When they could find not... Uh, When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So the picture is Jesus is teaching. He's in this crowd, and there's so many people. A guy who's sick and paralyzed, his friends can't get him close enough to Jesus because there's just so many people gathered to hear him teach. So they climb up on the roof. They make way, they they drop him down in front of him. We know the story. Jesus uh, heals him, and he gets up. In Luke chapter 7, he heals a centurion's servant, and then he raises a widow's son from the dead, all very publicly. In Luke chapter 8, he calms the storm. He casts a legion of demons out of a man into a pig's. He heals a woman and raises a daughter, all very public. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through 42, it says this. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. That's a lot of people. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to a concert where it's just thousands and thousands and thousands of people and they're in a field and everyone's like this close and the whole crowd's moving and people can get crushed in the middle, right? Guess what? If if our church was full today, nobody would be crushed. So the crowds had to have been more than a couple of hundred people. We're talking thousands of people, right? Thousands of people. One more example. In Luke chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, this is, again, another famous story. Uh, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Verse 4, he welcomed them and spoke to them, about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Verse 14, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit in groups, and we know from the story he fed them. So, historically, they only counted the men. Not really fair, but that's what happened. So he said there was 5,000 men. Uh, Guestimations of total number of people, including women and children. Well, if there was a woman for every man and one child for every family, there was about... 15,000 people, conservatively. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been to the Dunkin' Donuts Arena in Providence to see a concert or a game or any of those kinds of things? Anyone ever been? Never been to Providence? Uh, Wow. Okay. Okay, good. I'm like, how many people do you think that arena holds? 14,000 people. How many have ever been to uh, TD Bank? North, uh, where the cell play. How many people does that hold? Yep. Maximum capacity is 19,600. That crowd that Jesus fed that day was between 15 and 20,000 people conservatively. So put yourself in that arena at whatever concert and look around and say, 
That's how many people were on the mountainside to hear Jesus teach. In a day and age when there was no amplification, there was no newspapers, there was no television, there was no social media announcing, uh, come to this big event. This was all word of mouth. And in a day when the population was not what it is today. People lived in, these were villages, these weren't major cities. He was on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, which was a good-sized town, but it was, it was a town of thousands, not tens of thousands. It's a good-sized crowd, right? It's a good-sized crowd. So here's the thing. When it says huge crowds followed him, that crowd had to have been 15,000, 20,000 people who were following him around. That's amazing. Why were they following him? Well, they were following him because they were amazed by him. His teaching just was amazing. Like, it, it, it was sensational. It was something new. It was something different. Like, wow, it was such authority. Like, it was sensational. He healed people. I mean, even if you didn't need healing, to see people be healed is amazing to watch, isn't it? If you've ever been in a service and you've watched somebody get healed, like, there's, it just does something. It makes you feel good. You, you, you could watch that all day long. I mean, he was casting out demons. He fed them. I mean, that's pretty amazing to, to go to a place like uh, Dunkin' Donuts Center or um, TD Bank North there. I, I forget the, it's the garden, right? TD Garden. And like, they just feed you. I mean, that's going to save you like 50 bucks right there, right? Like they're just, so he fed them and he was standing up to the religious leaders of the day, which in and of itself was sensational as well. Today we would call him an influencer. I mean, his Instagram page would be blowing up. Millions of followers, right? He'd be a household name. He was a household name. I'm trying to get you this perspective because um, sometimes we think historically Jesus, he's just this guy in a robe who walked around with 12 people and randomly talked to people on their front doors like some sort of Jehovah Witness. Right? That's kind of the view in our minds of what we get of Jesus. But no, Jesus packed out arenas. 15,000 people show up without him announcing anything. They're just following him. He's trying to get away from them, and they chase him down into the mountainside and the countryside. In fact, it's so remote, there's not enough place for them to find food for everybody, so Jesus just keeps breaking the bread and feeding everybody because locally they don't have enough food to feed everybody who's there. It's huge. People wanted to hear him speak. They wanted to see what he would do next. They wanted to receive healings. We have a term uh, for the majority of the crowd today. We would call them fans. They were fans of Jesus. They just follow him everywhere. They're just excited to be around him. I mean, just the excitement of being in his presence and the environment that was happening every week, right? I mean... Can you imagine if every single Sunday morning we showed up to church here and the preached word was amazing, the Spirit of God fell on people as they worshipped, people were getting healed of diseases, people were being raised from the dead, demons were being cast out. I mean, that's an exciting thing to be a part of every time that you show up, right? Pretty sure 
this place would be packed out, uh, multiple services, the town giving us a hard time because of parking, right? We'd have all of these issues going on because it's dynamic, it's sensational, things are happening. This is what was happening as the large crowds are following Jesus. They wanted to be associated with him for what they could get because how he made them feel. It was a popular thing to do. But here's the thing that we learn from this very first verse, that Jesus wasn't looking for fans. Jesus was looking for disciples. In fact, his great commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 says, uh, therefore go and make what? Disciples. Not go gather a huge crowd of people who think I'm awesome. Or make my name famous so everybody who carries it around like a badge of honor, like, hey, yeah, I'm in the Jesus Club too. Woo! Right? Like, no, Jesus is like, no, I'm not interested in fans. He turned to the huge crowd that was following him and said, listen, if you want to be my disciple, bang, and he starts laying it out. In verses 26 through 35, he begins to articulate that there's a cost involved to being a disciple versus being a fan. Right? And he starts with one story about a building project, a tower. I think we can all find familiarity in this. We still build things today. People build houses. Uh, We build buildings for businesses or whatnot. Um, And he says, hey, who starts a building project without figuring out how much it costs? I mean, none of us would would, uh, build a house without making sure we we could get the money from the bank. Right? You wouldn't call up and hire the contractor and get everybody out there, and then all of a sudden, oh, no, I don't have any money to do this. Right? It would be, rightfully so, everybody would say, that's an idiot. Right? They decided to build a house and they they didn't even realize how much it was going to cost. They didn't sit down and say, oh, we only have 40 grand in the bank and it's like add a zero to that to build a house. Right? Like people sit down and they consider the cost to build something before they even start so that they make sure that they can actually finish it because. There are several uh, famous buildings around the world that got started and never finished, and now they're kind of like ha-has. When I was growing up as a kid, uh, the the state had built this huge interstate exchange. They had had built um, over the highway, they had this huge plan, they built bridges and all this stuff, but they hadn't secured the land to connect the highways yet. But they went ahead with the project anyway, and they built all the bridges to like tens of millions of dollars, and guess what? The little local farmer refused to sell his farm. Those bridges sat there for 20 years, built with not a single car driving over them. It was a laughing joke. Every time we drove under them, we're like, this was a waste of money. You get the picture. This is the illustration that Jesus is drawing on like everybody sits down and considers this before they even start. The second illustration he has, he talks about a battle fought. Everyone plans to see if they have enough resources to win. Now, we're not really in a day and age where we have like kings 
and times of year when kings go out to war and all of these kinds of pieces. But we do understand the, the, the concept of, of fighting for something. Whether you're going off to court for something or we're defending uh, something like we don't just don't jump into a battle and help other people and we don't have enough resources to do it. You sit down and you think through your resources. You think, can I engage in this properly and come out ahead and win? And if you go, no, there's no way I can fight this or do this, it's better off to negotiate or something of that nature instead of starting to fight somebody uh, on something and lose terribly. So these are common everyday stories or examples that Jesus is giving. And what he's saying is this, that everything we do in life has a price tag. Everything costs. Everything costs. It costs money. That's always our first go. How much money is it? But there's other costs involved. There's energy. There's, there's your strengths. There's your time. There's your, even just your attention, your mental attention. There are favors sometimes you have to call in like, hey, I can cash in on this favor as I'm considering this cost. There's relational costs. There's sometimes through things and things you want to get done, people aren't going to do it with you. Or some people are going to jump on with you. There's everything has a cost and a price tag. And Jesus is simply saying that we need to consider the cost required to move from being a fan to being a disciple. Because Jesus suddenly says, I'm not interested in you starting off and not being able to finish. I think that's pretty generous of Jesus. I think that speaks to his character that he's not some sort of bait and switch kind of God. Like, I'm going to lure you in and then I'm going to tell you what it's really like. No, he's up front like, hey, here are the costs. I want you to know right away. So what are these costs? What are the costs of being a disciple versus being a fan? Well, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Let's pause for a minute here. Is Jesus actually saying that I need to declare my hatred towards my wife and my children, that I need to cut off relationships with my parents, that... No, this is what we call hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement to prove a point. Okay? So we're going to come back around to that in a minute. But Jesus is not advocating that you have to hate every single person in your life. Verse 27, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Then there are the stories we just talked about. And then in verse 33, he says, In the same way, remember, he just talked about a king going off to war, counting the costs. And then he says, in the same way, those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. In the same way. The same way that somebody sits down and considers the cost of building and in the same way that a king considers the cost of going out to war. In the same way, here's the cost. Giving up everything you have. It's jeez. Is God telling us to hate? Is God telling us to sell everything we have? Is God telling us to be homeless? What is, what is God saying? I know some of you know where I'm going, but these, aren't, these things that Christ is saying, they've heard these things before. 
This isn't a new thing. All of a sudden, he just turns and he's had enough. And he's, no, he's reiterating things he's already been teaching them along the way. Like after the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62 says this, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So the guy's saying, hey, I'm not a fan. I'm, I'm, I'm with you everywhere. And Jesus says what to him? Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This isn't a pity statement. Jesus, Jesus isn't saying, feel sorry for me. I have nowhere to lay my head. Whoa. He's saying, no, no, no. You want to follow me? This is a life you're going to live. This is how I live. So follow me if you want then. But no, we bounce. We don't have a, home. We don't have a place we call home. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And it sounds like another, again, that sounds like a harsh statement. But what Jesus is referring to here is a a cultural norm that a, a, a young man took care of the family and his father until his death. So it's not that the dad had already died and he needed to go bury him and Jesus was saying no. It's like, hey, God, I need to wait until my dad dies. And then once I bury him, I'll come follow you. And Jesus is like, no. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These sound very harsh, but what Jesus is saying is there's a price to being a disciple. But you guys have some things that are getting in the way of that. And he's saying nothing should hinder us being or pursuing being a disciple of Christ. Another example that's really popular is Luke chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. This is a story Jesus is talking to a young ruler who comes and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts going down the list like, uh, keep the Ten Commandments, do this, do that. And he's like, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, Ha, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Can you guys afford it? Because my app just clocked out on me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. What happened? The man was so excited. He was a fan of Jesus. Lord, tell me what I need to do. I'm your man. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be with you. And Jesus is like, well, keep, obey my commands. I've done those, Lord. Yep, check, 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 check. And Jesus, knowing what was really standing in the way, said, go sell all your possessions. The guy's like, you're asking too much. And the man walked away. And I think the next slide, um, sorry, my, my uh, app just crashed on me. Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. Is God speaking against riches? He's not speaking against riches. He's speaking against riches getting in the way of discipleship. Can we go on? Indeed, it is easy for a camel 
we got? Uh, Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Um, Go ahead to the next slide. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Just stay there. So Jesus is saying, hey, the rich young ruler, um, your possessions are getting in the way of you following me. You, you, that's hindering your, thank you, that's hindering your discipleship, your being a disciple. This is, you care about your possessions more than about following me. You're, you've said, hey, um, that's important, so Jesus, I need to keep that, so I'm going to say no to you. And Jesus says, hey, with that, with that mindset, you can't be my disciple. You've got to be willing to give up everything. And Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. Let me pause for a minute. Why would somebody, anybody, give up everything? It sounds like a really harsh requirement. Jesus is saying, hey, can't be my disciple unless you're willing to give give it all up. So why would anyone say, yes, I'm giving it all up for you? Am I cutting out on this too? Just interesting, huh? That like my the the technology dies and then the microphone's dying and because um, I think God wants to speak to us today. Why would anyone give up everything, Peter? We've left all we had to follow you, Jesus. I mean, he's shocked at what Jesus is saying about this. Rit- like, who can get into heaven then? I mean, who can who can be a disciple? Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brother or sister or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, listen, uh, if you leave everything for, to be my disciple, you will be rewarded. So, Jesus isn't just asking people to give up everything and be destitute and be promised nothing. He's saying, listen, uh, I, I'm going to reward you in this life and in the life to come. Now, like most people, we're like, well, what's my reward? Like, we're like, we're going to weigh. Hmm, let me think if it's worth it. If you're at that place where you're weighing, is it worth it to give up everything? Um, probably still a fan. Because when Jesus really touches your heart and really gets your attention, like everything else pales in comparison to following him and being with him. And I'm not saying that to criticize. I'm not saying that to demean. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus is continually calling us to be disciples and not fans. And he's saying, listen, count the cost. And here's the cost, that I expect that being my disciple is the priority for your life. That if there's anything that gets in the way of you being my disciple, I'm going to ask you to get rid of it. 
I'm going to ask you to leave that behind. I'm going to ask you to shed that. And that's going to be a continual thing for the rest of your life. It's not a one-time thing. Jesus is not, hey, uh, come, you know, come be a Christian. Call me your Lord and Savior, and you're going to give up a few things right away, but then it's a continual thing. From now until the day you breathe your last, Jesus is going to continually be knocking at your door and saying, hey, this is getting in between you and me. And the question is, the cost to consider before you start the journey is, am I willing to leave that behind for the sake of following Christ? Whatever it is, the it is different for me than it is for you. There are things that I can enjoy that do not get in the way of my relationship with Christ, do not get in the way of my journey of following him, but that might be totally in, in, in a stumbling block for you, and vice versa. There are things that I have to say no to, like, nope, I can't do that because that's going to get in the way between me and God. And the cost of discipleship is the willingness to make God the primary. That all else pales in comparison. Church, I think this is an important uh, word, not just for our church, but for society where we live at today because there are a lot of fans of Jesus. There are a lot of folks who... who um, when it's convenient, they'll go to church and they want to go to a place where they're entertained and they want to hear certain things and experience certain things and all these kinds of pieces. But as soon as God starts knocking on the doors of their life and asking them to change some things and, hey, that's getting in the way, it's like, no, how dare you, God, ask me? How dare you ask me to change how I think about things? How dare you ask me to... Uh, change my value system? How dare you ask me to, to push my politics out of my faith? How dare you? There, we, we, we have these things that we say, no, God, that's off limits to you. And I know I'm preaching hard today, church, but it's time that the church says, I am 100% for Jesus Christ and be damned the rest of the world. I'll give that up. I'll sell my house if it's in the way. I'll leave my friends behind. I'll, comparison, it may look like I hate them, but I'm going to love Jesus with everything I have. And church, that's what's going to change this world. Not the fact that we label Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. I stand on the right side of the political aisle. And we do nothing about it. That's what's going to change this world. Not playing church, not showing up and doing some religious form, not being ticked off because pastor raised his voice. Oh, I disagree with this. I'm going to find some place. It's, it's hogwash. It's ridiculousness. We need to, Jesus is turning and looking at the crowd and saying, if you want to be my disciple, you must sacrifice everything for me. And it's been a long time in this world, and there's very few people who say, I'll sign up for that, Jesus. I've counted the costs. I'm going to wear myself out in this life for you. 
because I know my reward is somewhere else. That's the kind of church God is calling us to be. It's the kind of people God is calling all of us to be and inviting us. It's awesome if you're a fan for Jesus. Take the next step. Become a disciple. Say, I've counted the cost. I know that this is a lifestyle God's going to be inviting me to the rest of my life. And I'm going to sign up for it anyway. And if you can't say that, guess what? Don't sign up. Don't sign up. You know why? The warning? Because salt is great. But once it loses its saltiness, it's, it's, it's worthless. And we have too many people who are fans of Jesus, who are standing on promises Jesus never made them because they're not disciples, who are calling themselves disciples of Jesus, but have lost their saltiness, and as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, they're worthless. Now, their value as an individual is not worthless, and Jesus wants to redeem that, but their stance as a Christian is worthless to the kingdom of God because they've lost their saltiness. Everything else is more important than God. Sorry, God. My kids need to do some sort of level of sports. I can't, I, I can't be a part of a community. Sorry, God, there's no church in, in the area where I live who preaches like I want to be preached to. And I know I'm preaching hard, but I've made a commitment to God that I don't care anymore. Like, we need to hear what God is saying. I'm done tickling ears and trying to fill a church of people who are just fans of Jesus because you know what? Keeping fans entertained is tiresome. I'm not interested in entertaining people anymore. I'm interested in you knowing what this says and what God is asking of you. And if you say no, you say no. But if you say yes, know what you're saying yes to. God asks us today that being a disciple requires a willingness to give up anything that gets in the way of being a disciple. That's what Jesus is saying today. He's not saying you all need to go home and sell your houses You all need to go home and call your parents and say, hey, I hate you. I don't want to be a part of you anymore. That's not what Jesus is saying today. That's all hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement to make a point. And the point is this. If if you don't want to be a fan and you want to be a disciple, you need to be willing to give up anything that gets in the way of that discipleship. And if you're unwilling to, don't become a disciple. Because... From the moment you profess being a disciple of Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, I commit myself to follow you, he's going to start asking you to shed some things. He's going to ask you to shed some mindsets. He's going to ask you um, to, to shed your own inhibitions. He's going to ask you to change the way you think. He's going to ask you to change your friend uh, groups. He's going to ask you to change your, your desires and your preferences. It's, it's a constant life of Jesus Knocking on the door and saying, hey, um, I know you really enjoy that, but you enjoy that more than you enjoy me. So we can't have it. And your decision needs to be, 
Yes, Lord. I had a friend in high school when he got saved. He was probably the best drummer I'd ever, I'd ever met. I mean, the kid during class, he'd have his pencils out and he's like tapping on his desk, coming up with drum beats for a song he's writing. And the teacher would be like, Chris, stop. You know, I'm so sorry. He got saved. And God told him, your drums are in the way. You love the drums more than you love me. He stopped playing the drums for five years. When I met my wife, um, I mean, the first time I went on a date with her, I was like, I want to marry this, this girl. Like, it was... But God was taking her through a different, a different route. And I went over to her apartment one night, and she says, um, I'm not sure that we can... We can date anymore. Why? What did I do? Nothing. I've just prayed. I've realized that you're getting in the way of my relationship with God. And so I said to him, well, if it means losing Steve, then I'm willing to lose Steve to follow Jesus. I didn't like that prayer. But she was willing She'd found love and she was willing to say, you know what, if Steve's getting in the way of my following Jesus Christ, then Steve needs to go. Thank God. God said, no, don't get rid of Steve. Steve can help you. Said, Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and I'm telling you stories, there's many other stories where I've, I've dragged my feet and I've said, God, I don't want to give that up. I don't want to move there. I don't want to do that. That's going to require something of me. That hurts. That's going to cost me something. And Jesus says, yeah, this is what you signed up for, remember? And then I say yes. Because God makes a lot of promises to his disciples in Scripture that we're not going to get into today. But he said to Peter, those who give up everything for the sake of the kingdom, well, let me go back. Truly I tell you to him, no one who has left home or wife or brother or sister or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. God promises rewards. But there's no bargaining with God. God knows what rewards are good and lead you to life and what rewards are not good and will lead you away from life. God does the rewarding. We don't get to choose our rewards. And you seem to trust that the rewards God have for you are good. but he will reward. The question for us today is, are you willing to pay the cost of discipleship? And I'm not going to do an altar call or have you raise your hand and say, yes, pastor, I'm willing, because Jesus said you need to count the cost. And we could have some emotional plea after a hard preaching. We could say yes to Jesus. But the reality is, God doesn't want you to start off 
and then, and then go, you know what? No, I'm not interested anymore. He wants you to, to say, hey, I'm asking that any time we discover anything gets in the way between you and me, you're going to give it up. Let me pause here for a minute. If you're saved, God is not telling you to, to leave your spouse, nor is he telling you to abandon your children. But sometimes spouses walk away, and sometimes children walk away because we're following Jesus, and that's what he's referring to. Sometimes our following Jesus causes people to abandon us. It happens. It's painful. It's part of the cost of following Jesus. So, you know, anybody leave here and say, you know, cost of following Jesus, we got to get a divorce. Like, God is not going to tell you to do that. Just needed to clarify that because that verse sometimes, like, none of those who have left father, mother, brother, whoa. You're not getting permission. Um, God's not giving you permission to walk away. So I challenge you this week, today, this week, to walk away and say, Jesus, um, am I a fan? Am I a disciple? None of us likes it when Jesus asks us to give stuff up. I'm not saying that you have to say, I love that. I really enjoy it when Jesus tells me to sell stuff or get rid of stuff or break stuff off, but if in your heart you say, no, if God revealed to me, I would, I would do what it takes to follow him. Like, examine your own heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Am I, am, am I just a fan? Am I just following Jesus because it's what I was taught growing up? Um, it's my insurance, fire insurance policy so I don't go to hell. Um, like, what, what motivates your following of Jesus? Are you just following him for what you can get from him? That's, that's a classic definition of a fan, right? Every sports team has a lot of fans when they're winning, right? As soon as they go into losing streaks, their fan base drops, Right? Because fans love what it does for them. But we're not in this for what Jesus can just do for us. Disciples are in this because of what, how they can, they can be with God and help build his kingdom. And in that, Jesus does for us. So I challenge you this week to examine, are you a fan or are you a disciple? And then count the cost. Can you make that commitment that if Jesus comes knocking on your door and asks you to remove something from your life that's getting in the way, you're going to do it? Or are you going to allow him to do it? Let's pray. Lord, today we looked at some really hard, hard teachings. And the reality is, Lord, even after this, you got harder and you start talking about if they don't drink your blood and eat your flesh, they can't be your disciple. And many people walked, many fans walked away from you. But when you turn and you looked at the disciples and you said, are you going to leave me too? Their response was, where will we go? You have the words of life. Lord, may we respond and we be like your disciples. 
May the things that you teach and the things that you ask, even if they don't make sense, may we know in our heart that this is where life is at. And I'm going to follow you even if I don't understand, even if it's not going well with me. Even if the things that you say and the things that you do or seem to go contrary to society or even my own thoughts, I'm still going to follow you because you have the words to life. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would, would examine each one of us and you'd put before us, are we, are we just fans? Are we, are we following you only when it's convenient for what we can get from you? Or are we willing to submit ourselves to you and allow you to remove anything in our lives that would get between us and you and following you. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this space, everyone hearing this thing, would consider the costs and decide to follow you, be a disciple. Because the road that you lead on, even though it's perilous and it's filled with hardship, uh, it's also filled with great reward. Lord, I pray that for your Holy Spirit's strength and encouragement and leading for us as we walk this road. As we learn to give you more of our life, more of our heart, more of our thought process. Would you come and do in us what only you can do? We thank you and we praise you in your precious and holy name. Amen.